Hi, I'm, I'm Jim Holland. I'm uh, with the USDA ARS, and I'm located here at NC State. I'm a corn breeder and geneticist, and um, uh, this is just a special seminar. We were lucky enough to have um, Martha Wilcox um, agree to give a special seminar <clears throat> on her work at the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center. Uh, Martha is the Maize Land Race Improvement Coordinator at at CIMIT, which is the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center, which is in Mexico. Martha is originally from North Carolina. She received her bachelor's degree in agronomy and a master's degree in crop science from NC State. Um, she got her PhD in plant breeding and plant genetics at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. <clears throat> and then she worked as a postdoc at CIMIT in the stress breeding unit, selecting for host plant resistance to Southwestern corn borer. After her postdoc, she was hired as a permanent scientist at CIMIT, where she addressed biosafety issues of experimental trials of transgenic maize in collaboration with Mexican experts in genetic resources. And that was from 1995 to 97. And then she worked in the corn host plant resistance research unit of the USDA ARS, um, working on molecular mapping of resistance to aflatoxin. Um, she returned to CIMIT in 2011 as the phenotyping coordinator for the Seeds of Discovery project, which sought to identify novel alleles in the CIMIT maize germplasm bank. And since 2014, she has worked as the maize land race coordinator at CIMIT, focusing on farmer participatory improvement of native maize land races in the states of Oaxaca, Michoacan, and Mexico in marginalized, mostly indigenous communities. As part of this project, she's worked very hard to connect traditional farmers with culinary markets, and I'm going to mute myself, and you can take over, Martha. Thank you for, for agreeing to give us this talk. Thank you, Jim, and thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm pleased to have so many people attending, and um, hopefully this will be of interest. Uh, as most of you know, Mexico is the center of origin and diversity of maize. There are 59 races of maize identified as having evolved within the boundaries of Mexico. And this is a photo of some of those races, not all of the 59, but it gives you an idea of the diversity of ear size and shape, grain color, grain size, and even you can see some differences in texture. Um, as Edgar Anderson said in 1946, there's often more diversity in a single village in Mexico than in the entire country of the United States. And that diversity is not only, um, it, it's not only the, the diversity of races, but there's also still a large amount of the area sown to maize every year in Mexico is planted to native land races. More than 60% of the hectares planted to maize are planted to unimproved varieties. We have better data on the improved varieties. So it's unimproved varieties, which includes mostly native land race mazes. And this is a map of Mexico, which shows the state boundaries. And you can see that 60% is not homogeneous. There, different states have different amounts of native maize sown. And the lighter areas are with the lowest amount from zero to 10%. And then the darkest areas are 85 to 100%. So you can get an appreciation for the diversity of types of maize grown within um, Mexico. And if you go down to a municipal level, it's even more, um, there's even more diversity at that level of improved versus non-improved mazes. But it's an important part of the, the production and an important part of the culture. And the driving forces behind the fact that so many land races are still used in Mexico and so much uh, of the area is planted to land races partly comes from the culinary uses. There are over 700 documented dishes that include maize in Mexico. And many of these dishes either require a specific land race or better prepared with specific land races. And so you can see some of these dishes. It's not just tamales and, and tortillas. There's a, their desserts, their soups, their drinks, 
their cookies made with these land races. And it, the, the amount of um, culinary use is incredible. And even in um, commercial maize producing areas, some, some of the hybrid maize producers keep a small plot just for their own home consumption of land races. So the other major factor on of land races, of why land races have been conserved and are still planted in Mexico, has to do with the climatic diversity. This shows the agricultural, the agroclimates of the maize producing areas of Mexico and almost everywhere in Mexico maize is grown. And the major um, environmental factors are altitude and precipitation. So the altitude goes from zero um, meters above sea level to about 3,100 meters above sea level. And the precipitation goes from tropical rainforest to desert. So there's um, that overlay of different climates and different uses really is part of what drives the continued diversity of land race maize in Mexico. Also, um, there are a number of environments that are too small and too specific to be served by hybrid breeding programs. So this is a um, village that I've worked in for the last five years that's in the Sierra Sur of Oaxaca. It's a village where every afternoon during the rainy season at three o'clock, the clouds drop down and you're surrounded by a fog that causes lower um, sunlight as well as high humidity that's perfect for disease, for diseases. And when we evaluated the local land races, which is the race Comiteco, both the yellow and the white versions that were found in that, village against a very good subtropical hybrid that was released by Inafap and is very popular in subtropical areas in, in, um, in Mexico. In this microenvironment, it was devastated by diseases. And this is part of the driving forces in some of these villages, really their local land race is the best option for them. I was charged in 2014 with working on a land race improvement project for a large project that CIMIT has managed um, since 2011, Masagro, with working on uh, working with subsistence farmers on improving their food security. And we specifically focused on some of the poorest areas in Mexico. And just to talk about what are the characteristics of subsistence maize farming in Mexico, these farmers save and select their own seed. They consume their own grain. For the most part, they inherit their seed from their ancestors. And for the most part, they grow multiple races, colors, and textures in a single village for specific dishes. They plant generally just enough to feed their family and are reticent to invest time and resources in um, producing excess grain if there's no clear market. We started this project in Oaxaca, partly because Oaxaca is a mega diverse state where of the 59 races of maize, there are, there are 35 of those races found within the borders of Oaxaca. We also had a depth of experience of collaborators there. I worked with um, on this project with Flavio Aragon um, and Humberto Castro, who are from Inifap and Chipingo and are breeders, and with Leo de Gario Esorio, who's an agronomist from Inifap, and then I coordinated. We, um, I call this community-based participatory plant improvement because we were trying to do work both on the genetics and on the agronomic management of these land races to improve food security. And we worked not with specific individual farmers, but with the whole community. And so on the participatory plant breeding part, we requested samples from all the farmers willing to participate in the village. We did randomized replicated trials of those seed samples and looked at not only yield, but agronomic traits and diseases 
to try to understand both the diversity within the village and the potential for moving forward specific seed of farmer seed samples in a breeding project, either in recombination or selection through um, the, the following years. We did farmer training courses and we worked within the community, the technicians to do the agronomic management. Here you can see the harvest of some of this maize. And then we would do field day demonstrations where we invited the community and neighboring communities to look at these um, farmer seed samples and to vote on which ones they liked the best. And we registered differences between male and female voting on what preferences were. In the agronomic side, um, just to emphasize how difficult some of these communities are, this community, San Antonio in Doyaco, is a community in the Mixteca Alta of Oaxaca that kept me up many nights worrying about these people. And it's a highland, um, semi-arid area, and the extreme poverty index by the Mexican government is almost 50%. There's a very high out-migration rate of 60%. It's a stony, low fertility soil. They have a number of biotic st stresses of white grubs, tar spot, and tersicum. And they grow two different kinds of mazes, chalqueño and conico, in order to really mitigate their, their food security risk because it's a very difficult climate. And their growing season is really bracketed by the abiotic stresses of drought at the beginning of the season and frost at the end of the season. The two different planting systems that they use are cajete, which means little box where they dig down to residual humidity in the soil, um, which can be up to 30 centimeters and plant the seed of the raised chalcano there, which has the ability to elongate the hypocotyl and grow um, and grow until the rains initiate whenever they initiate. The other, um, and it's a high yielding, very um, long season race. The other uh, race that we work with in that village is um, Conico, which is a shorter season and is planted in conventional rows plowed by oxen at the initiation of rains. And it's a shorter season, lower yielding. And really my work with this village, they have total losses in one or the other almost every year. So that's why they continue to plant both types of maize. We did a lot of work on plant spacing and on fertility using as a baseline the traditional methods. These farmers plant at 1.4 meters distance between the holes and they don't use any fertilizer. So we looked at shortening the distance using a soil test to add fertilizer using half that to try to cut the cost. And we could easily increase, greatly increase the yield. But what we found was that there was an extreme genotype by management interaction between all of these different farmer populations and their ability to um, respond to fertilizer, their ability to deal with higher densities. And um, what we found was that really this required looking at production costs and coming up with what was the most favorable production system for farmers in order to even select in that environment, because there was no point in um, coming up with a, a selection method that required fertilizer that wasn't available or affordable to the farmers. And in the end, we ended up moving more towards um, association trials, intercalating legumes with maize, um, doing rotations, basically moving to more towards the milpa system that has been in Mexico for thousands of years. And here are some of these trials, associate, association trials. So on this participatory selection between 2014 and 2019, we conducted 165 trials and nurseries in three states. We expanded to Michoacan and, and the state of Mexico, did a lot of farmer trainings. 
And we were able to um, combine this participatory selection with some agronomic improvement, but really what generated the most interest and probably had the biggest impact on farmers was giving market access to some of these very traditional indigenous communities with high-end culinary buyers. And we were really lucky to have the opportunity fall in our laps where um, there were some people looking for, to source maize for a restaurant that was gonna open in New York. And um, we, I went around with some of the technicians. We asked farmers if they had some excess maize that they could sell. And we put together a, a shipment that went to New York of 10 tons. And really, um, I didn't know at the time, but it was for a very famous chef named Enrique Alvera, who was opening a restaurant in New York. And he had the vision of being able to use the diversity of these native mazes to um, call them single origin tortillas. And so he was marketing, um, bringing a basket of tortillas to the table that, that the waiter could say, this is from this farmer in this village, this race, and it's a, a unique product. And that really was successful. And the restaurant Cosme that they opened was named the best new restaurant in New York City. It got critical acclaim. It's one of the top 50 restaurants in the world now. And um, there was a lot of talk about the flavors of these tortillas coming from these native mazes. And that really was a detonating factor in getting the culinary community really interested in using these native mazes that really hadn't had a market before. And so I was really lucky to receive funding from within the maize program um, to work on connecting farmers to culinary markets. And there were a lot of farmers with excess maize, there was a lot of demand, but there was a big breach between those two. And so I worked for a couple of years trying to, to kind of bridge that gap. And this is, these are some pictures from the southern part of the state of Mexico from the community, from a community near Mecca Mecca, where they have very beautiful Chalcanio maize. And the, the real um, beauty of this, pro of this project was that chefs were willing to pay a premium for diversity and quality. And it was a way to target really small farmers, which in development is not easy to do. And we were, and it was also a way to promote in situ conservation of these really rare -er types of maize that people weren't really aware existed. Um, and oh, I'll go back. The And from those 10 tons the first year, there was really an exponential um, export of these mazes to the US and Europe. And so the demand, oops, sorry, the demand what the the demand was increasing. And one thing just to note is that it wasn't just exchanging phone numbers. There was a lot of work involved in bridging this gap. We had to work with the communities to help with getting them to the level of grain cleaning that would pass borders and allow um, phytosanitary testing and things like that to happen. We worked on um, aflatoxin testing. And because these native land races are very, very attractive to um, grain weevils, we used hermetic bags and worked on record keeping because what the goal was is to go into a community where people had very small quantities of excess maize that they didn't need for their family, combine it into a big enough lot that people were interested in buying it and shipping it out. And with this interest in the US and Europe in these native mazes, there was also um, an expanded interest in Mexico and a number of restaurants that opened, highlighting native mazes and native products like Criollo and Oaxaca. There were a number of tortillerias that opened specializing in native maize tortillas like Molino Puyol and um, Maizajo. And so that was has been another factor on demand. 
And since I was helping connect these farmers and knew the prices from the beginning in 2014 through the present, I could look at really the change that this demand on the from culinary markets made on prices paid to farmers. So over um, from 2014 to 2018, we can see an increase in price paid to farmers. And this is across eight different types of maize. When I average those, the average increase is 99% in price paid to farmer over that period. And I looked at the change in price of hybrid maize over that same period to differentiate between what's just inflation versus um, actual increase in price due to demand. And so it seems that most of that is coming from increased demand. So the question is, um, with this increased demand, is how to preserve and expand benefits to small-scale traditional land-raised farmers. Because the, the, demand, the demand was greater than the ability to supply at first. And so one of the things that we did and with the help of CONABIO, which is the um, National Commission for Biodiversity in Mexico, was to bring together experts in native maize to discuss how to do this. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of meetings defining standards for distinguishing native maize. And that was important because actually the... Um, the official price for maize in Mexico is pegged to the board, the Chicago Board of Trade. And so differentiating this as a different product was necessary. And also we wanted, we were able to form a panel of experts to identify native maize and to define types of farmers and communities that we wish that should be targeted to be benefited through this, this new market. And after lots of discussion, we um, found the way that seemed the most, um, that seemed to be the best way to do this was to form a nonprofit association of those experts and farmer cooperatives. And through that, um, that nonprofit association, we worked very hard for a long period of time bringing together the rules of use of a collective trademark. And that collective trademark, the rules of use, um, describe how this maize, native maize can be verified by experts, that the smallholder status can be verified, and that the maize comes from, the native maize comes from the documented area where it's been historically grown in order to prevent maize from being moved from lower yielding villages to higher yielding villages and circumventing the actual um, original communities. And that we would seek to have um, prices be compensatory with the quality, rarity, and history of the maize. And that collective trademark was um, named Min Pais, which incorporates Minpa, which is the um, traditional intercropping system, Maiz, which is maize, and Pais, which signifies Mexico. And that was um, approved by the Mexican government. And part of the, the question of really trying to benefit farmers was finding a way to allow the, the price, more of the price to go to the farmers. And so one of the things that we worked on through the project from the Cement Maze Program in association with the nonprofit was to legally form cooperatives in some of these areas that had maize that was in quite a bit of demand, help them with um, tax registration, bank accounts, et cetera, so that they could interact directly with restaurants and exporters, which gave them a higher proportion of the profits instead of going through a chain of um, intermediaries. We also sat down with them and went through their cost of production, which was really surprising because farmers generally run um, 
run calculations through their head constantly, but it seemed that when we really sat down with 12 farmers and went through all of their costs, that there were a lot of things that they weren't actually taking into account. They were taking into account more of their cash outlay and not very much of their um, costs that were related to family labor and feeding um, day laborers, et cetera. So when we went through every step, they were shocked at how much it was costing them per hectare to produce their maize. And then the other thing that we did was to look at the different mazes within the community. So um, they're it, within the same race in this particular community, there are four different color variants. They don't yield the same. And the ones that yield less are really cost the same amount to produce. So it's, we've tried to differentiate by color variant or by variant within the pricing structure to um, incentivize growing some of these very much in demand colored variants, but that giving a price that would cause farmers to want to produce more of them. And we were, and here I looked at the prices between what we originally started at at 2014 and 2019. And 2014, really the farmers thought it was a good price. We asked them what they wanted and then increased it a peso above that. So they were super happy and they thought they were doing well. But when you look at some of the, the yields that they have in droughty years, which are very frequent in this part of Mexico, they were losing money. And so looking at these, um, at changing the pricing to incorporate actually the cost of production plus a profit margin of between 10 and 30%, it really changed the price. And we did have, you know, when we talked to um, buyers, some questions about that, but this is kind of the beauty of this whole system is that there are a lot of buyers who want to feel like they're helping these small farmers. So when we explained, these are the costs, this is the cost breakdown, many of the buyers said, okay, as long as I can explain it to my restaurants, and they can understand that it's going to the farmers and not it's just a price bump, they'll accept it. And that's actually what happened. And it's caused an increase in net revenue of over a thousand percent to this village. And this is in kind of a graphic form about um, the differences in prices versus what was we started with and then incorporating actually their cost of production. You can see that um, on the left, it's the 2014 prices and based on yield differences between droughty and um, better rainfall yields, what their profits would be or losses, that they really were losing money most of the time. And uh, using this, um, trying to incorporate their production costs and really communicating that to buyers has allowed them to lose less money in droughty years and to hopefully um, be able to have some higher profits in um, more optimal years. So really what um, this is, what this is, this whole project is about is trying to value not only the genetic resources of these mazes, but value the communities, the farmers, the cultural traditions of that community, which incorporate a lot of knowledge about production in very difficult circumstances, a lot about complex intercropping systems, and a lot of the culinary traditions, as well as just the cultural fabric of Mexico, which goes into really value for tourism and other things in Mexico. So I'm just presenting kind of the importance of these communities and their role in conservation of native mazes and the importance of you know, valuing, valuing what these farmers do and, and what their communities mean. So thank you. Thank you, Martha. Um, 
So to ask questions, I think everyone is capable of unmuting themselves. Um, I guess we should just go for a, we may attempt a free for all. If it devolves into chaos, I may try to extend control. Um, so anyone who wants to ask, go ahead and unmute yourself and, and uh, ask away. I have a question. Martha, can, can you guys hear me? Yes. Okay, Martha, uh, I, I really enjoyed your presentation a lot and I look forward to it since I caught wind of it. I have a, a, a question about whether uh, the this uh, Mil País program, is this open to, to potential newcomers that might be interested in going from commercial slash hybrid maize production to to back to land race? Is there any mechanism for, for potential newcomers to, to find their way back? Well, we had, there is a lot of interest in Mexico and there are a lot of people who are, um, a lot of interest from commercial hybrid farmers in converting to native land races. The problem with that is that honestly, for a lot of larger scale, um, for a lot of larger scale, even mid-sized industries, the reason that we fall into so much homogeneity is that any kind of processing on a larger scale, honestly, requires a certain um, a certain amount of homogeneity, mm -hmm. and so the question is: is is it going to work for them? But moreover, our concern has been is that really there are two million small farmers around Mexico that are on less than five hectares that have been for generations preserving this maize and. It is a question of how ethical is it for these to circumvent these small farmers who have been really the guardians of this maze to larger farmers. And so, you know, there is room for everybody in, in maize production in Mexico, but the whole point of this Mil País uh, collective trademark was to really identify these original communities that have always conserved these maize, mazes in order to give them enough of a price bump that the fact that they only are producing on two hectares that they could potentially continue to live off that. So it was kind of not for everybody, but for specific conservation of these really um, traditional communities. And I think that that's important because those are the communities that have the most diverse germplasm and really have the know-how of how to handle it. So that, that's what we were trying to, that's what we were trying to focus on. Marta, this is Carlos Iglesias here at NC State. I enjoy your, uh, your presentation a lot. A question is about, um, you mentioned that there's a culinary tradition in all these communities, and I imagine it applies to the maize, the corn that they grow, uh, and how to process it and how to, um, how to use it. Is that part of the value that they are somehow profiting from or not? Um, so when they sell the corn to these restaurants, do they do just whatever recipe they want, or could they source the knowledge and that could be a, a way of promoting and also generated income for the community. Not the genetics, but the knowledge itself of how to make the tortilla or the tamal or whatever it is. Yeah, there's a whole area um, that I don't really have the ability to delve into that has to do with farmer, traditional farmer knowledge, which isn't, um, you know, which there are a lot of people trying to protect that traditional farmer knowledge. So generally the use has been from chefs who already know and have already know Mexican culinary traditions and kind of rift off of those traditional dishes in the way that they, um, that 
in the way that they prepare it. I mean, all of the, you know, high-end culinary things that they do rifting off the traditional dishes is what I've seen the most. There's a lot of opportunities for trying to, um, you know, bring this to um, more communities. And we've particularly tried to connect with tortillerias in Mexico City and other um, smaller scale um, buyers who can get this out to the community. But at this point, it's not something that we have um, directly addressed, though, you know, I think that there are ways to try to create products and this, um, this collective trademark can also be used not only on maize, but on products of the milpa and elaborated products. So the tostadas could be sold if they're made from 100% native maize that's been gone through the system. Um, other products, even masarina, could be sold using this. So that we have thought about providing products, but the idea has been more to try to get products made within these villages to get maximum benefit for these villages is really what we've been trying to do. That's great. Thank you, Martin. So there's a few questions in the chat. Um, there's a two from Jay Bost at Hawaii. Jay, if you'd like to unmute and just go ahead and ask, we'll do that. And then the next question will come from Francesco Tietzi. Hi, can you hear me? Yes. I had um, a couple questions. One was, I was just noticing in some of the pictures that a lot of the farmers seemed like they were a little bit older. And I'm wondering if that's true or just the pictures and what are the implications of that? If you're seeing many younger farmers interested in this kind of work. And then my second question was the role of Macienda in the marketing. And I know that they're dealing with a drop in demand from the restaurants due to COVID and restaurants being closed. And, and what is that show of like the resiliency of this marketing strategy? And is there anyone, whether it's Macienda or Mil Pais that can buy the corn and hold it so that the farmers have a market regardless of fluctuations in demand due to things like COVID or other things that come up so that all of a sudden the farmers aren't left with this crop that no one can buy due to things that are out of their control. Yeah, that's a, the, those, those are um, very important questions. As far as the age of farmers, I mean, this is known throughout Mexico that most of the native maize farmers, most of the small farmers are between 60 and 80 years old. It's an aging population. Not only is the knowledge of those farmers in danger of being lost, but their germplasm. Because farmers save seed sitting in a barn or on a shelf will last maximum three years. And if all of that far, all of the children of that farmer have emigrated to the US and come back five years later and want to grow their you know, father's or grandfather's corn, it generally is not viable. So really it's a, you know, it's a question of not only losing the farmers, the, but the germplasm. And so that's part of the idea of pushing to make this profitable enough that some of the children of these farmers will come back and farm. And it's not an easy question. The, there are a few younger farmers. Price is important. And also, it, it, it's one of those things that was amazing to me. I didn't show it, but um, I worked with Macienda and was a scientific advisor for them when they started, you know, really at the initiation of driving around from village to village and, you know, having them sleep in, at my house and things when, when it was all starting up. The, the thing is, Macienda did a great job of promoting native maize. They did a lot, a lot, a lot of promotion. And they gave me magazines from New York, from culinary magazines. 
And I handed those to the farmers and they really would get tears in their eyes and say, it makes me feel like I am something. And so just to emphasize that it's the price, but it's also the dignity of the life that really hasn't been valued. So when we talk about valuing these farmers and valuing this maze, it's not just monetary value, but it's also, you know, giving them some credit for what they've done. And so it's really interesting. And Macienda has, has really moved this forward in a very large capacity. And there have been other players who've come in and I've tried to be very equitable about helping everybody who's starting up and connecting multiple buyers to villages. And that has been part of the factor that's moved these prices up is that it hasn't been a monopoly. There is a role for government investment or nonprofit investment. And, you know, we have been trying to find that and have been, you know, somewhat successful. There's a lot of putting in infrastructure. We had a grant that was funded and one of the things that was important was a rotating fund to be able to pay farmers without having an immediate buyer there because it causes a lot of problems. And so I agree with you. There's been um, a change in the restaurant industry. It's caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. I think, um, the home industry, like Anson Mills, has shifted really rapidly to, to providing grains to home use as opposed to restaurant use. And I think you need to count in some flexibility, which would mean going to doing things like making masarina that's more easy for home cooks. So there's a lot of things that can be done. It's just investment and you know, will and coordination and a lot of those things, which is why Simit's been important in this work because Simit has the ability to do that. Okay, we have a, we have a nice queue of questions coming up. So I'm just going to go in the order that they're coming in. And so if you have a question, probably best to at least put something down and then we'll switch to you. So well, we'll go to Francesco next. And then after that, I think it goes to Jose Cisneros and then Ignacio Sanchez and then Nicolas Lara. Okay, so Francesco, if you wanna ask your question. Yeah, good afternoon. This is Francesco Tiazzi from NC State University. My question was a bit more technical. Uh, the small farmers use that kind of germplasm with specific cropping systems, intercropping and so on. But if the larger farmers wanted to switch to that germplasm, should it also change your cropping system substantially? Because otherwise it just use genetic material uh, in a cropping system that's not suited for, or at any rate, the final result wouldn't be the same. So my question is uh, probably the, the germoplasm is not very portable to other, system right, to other systems right away. It's more a comment than a question. One of, one of the things that is, um, is different about these native mazes from commercial hybrids is the grain size. There's a lot of variation in grain size. Some of the grains are very large and not so adapted to mechanization, which is important for larger scale farming. So that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, a lot of these mazes are very, have a very strong micro adaptation and may not move well. Um, and the, um, there is some effort to, to look at, you know, intercropping on an industrial scale, but really the baseline is, and this is really hard for most Americans to, to grasp, is there, these are farmer, these varieties are the intellectual property of the farmers. And so, you know, we've lost that in the US and we've lost that concept and think of it more as a commodity. But really, these are things that have been developed by those farmers in those communities for generations and generations. So you have to at least take into account that that is their, that they have a, a right to benefit from that and that moving it around, giving it to large farmers, you know, there's been a lot of work among a lot of scientists trying to benefit these original communities. It's not an easy question. 
But that's one of the things that you really have to think about when you're talking about moving this to larger scales. And yes, it would benefit the end user in a way because you can produce it cheaper, but you lose some of the, you would definitely lose the some of the flavors and you lose the ability to benefit these originating communities. And so that's part of the reason we have not, we have not wanted that to happen. So um, I don't know if that answers your question sufficiently. Yes, it does. And I totally agree, totally agree. Thank you. Could, Jim, I know I'm butting in here, but could I ask the, a follow-up question to that, which is, wouldn't it be more logical to try to incorporate more of the 2 million plus small farmers into Milpais rather than try to retrofit commercial hybrid producers? Yeah, and that's exactly what we have wanted to do. It requires some funding because, you know, it were, and that's the beauty of the expertise that's in this group. And it is a totally nonprofit group that is open to anybody as long as they're willing to um, observe, to, to become a member and observe the rules of use. So it's nobody owns maize in Mexico. That's a really important concept that no one can trademark it. That's why it's a co collective trademark. It is not a commercial trademark. And collective trademark means it does it is for common use. So that's part of the things I see in some questions coming through. But yes, that is the point of this is we have the maize experts who've made these collection trips for decades all over Mexico who know which communities have the highest incidence of particular races and really where we had decided to start was in communities where there were already where most of the farmers were still growing native maize. It's much harder since maize is wind pollinated going into a community where it's 90% um, commercial maize and then 10% native maize is an uphill battle. But going into a community where it's 100% native maize, trying to incorporate them is a way to start conserving with those communities. But most of them are not organized in, into cooperatives because it costs money and it you know takes some effort so yeah this is the the idea that we have worked with there's a lot of opportunities to expand everything requires work and money um jose cisneros hi marta this is jose cisneros i'm at ncs state uh i really enjoyed your presentation and i think the, the, your initiative is fantastic um, but my question goes to, and kind of you answered part of it, uh, my question goes to the organization of the trademark and, and, and the trading and, the, and, and how do you get into the market uh, this, this uh, corn. Uh, in order to make it sustainable, um, you, you talk about the cost of production, but you didn't put in the equation the cost of the operation itself. So how is how is this is this being subsidized by NGOs by funding coming from from uh, international uh, organizations? Are you contemplating in some way at one point being the farmers, the owners of the trademark and of the whole operation, so that it can be sustainable in time? Yeah, we had um, you, the idea that we had had, and we had received some funding that due to some other things going on, we um, were not able to access that funding, but we were really looking for funding to kind of put training wheels on these cooperatives for a few years and have some money that would help them operate until they could get to the scale where having a small, um, a, a small price per kilo would make that sustainable for the cooperatives to continue operating and to spend time training those farmers and particularly young people in the community to do some of the testing and inventorying and things like that. that that's been the idea. It's, it, this is a work in, 
you know, that has started. It's not in full implementation. And I know that I can't see everybody on here, but there are some members of the Pro Maiz Nativo that could also speak to that. And really, they're the ones who are going to move this forward. But yes, um, investment from nonprofits is something really important. And it's something that um, is needed. And really, it, it just takes a certain, what we had envisioned was a few years of work in these communities to really get them moving on their own. But to keep it as a group of uh, a network of small-scale cooperatives that would benefit from working together and having a communal infrastructure through this um, nonprofit, Promais Nativo, to allow them to get the benefits of working together, but to have the diversity of, of individual cooperatives. So um, we have, I've got three more questions on the list. We have about eight minutes, so that might be it. There's also some nice comments on the chat. So when we finish up, I'll make sure Martha has time to see those, but let's um, go to Ignacio Sanchez next. Hi, I'm Ignacio Sanchez Prado from Washington University in St. Louis. I'm a cultural studies person, so I come from a, a very different angle. Uh, but I'm, this is something that I'm thinking myself on my own research uh, on food studies. But what I'm, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of the counter arguments to the model that you have been discussing. Uh, you know, arguments of appropriation by elite chefs like Enrique Olvera of these traditions, the gentrification of uh, peasant and indigenous foods. Uh, and you know, in the, this model is I, I value the the, the 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 way it's building an economy for peasants for sure. I think I just saw this in Oaxaca last last winter, but at the same time, it is producing a luxury good in the sense that a lot of this maize is not available to middle or lower class Mexicans or Mexican Americans. So I'm I'm wondering if you could address sort of the the question in which maize in which this maize is available either in the uh, lower end of the economic scale, like if you go to a small village in Oaxaca, or in the high end, like ratified world of elite cuisine, but not in, in anybody else's is in the middle. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it started out because of the demand from this very high end. And there is a logic logic in getting people who are willing to spend a lot of money on food to subsidize people who really need um, some investment in their communities. So that's the beginning of it. We have talked a lot about and tried to bridge that middle ground, but it involved trying to have enough funding to really get enough communities working on that in order to, and trying to move more into Mexican markets, tortilla rias. We've, we've tried to work with people opening tortilla rias to provide maize. Um, it's something that is work in progress and is constantly changing. And the other thing to, to say about that is there has been a system that has been operating for a long time in Mexico, which provides an awful lot of maize to cities and tortillerias, but it's kind of this coyote system where somebody with a truck pulls up to a village and says, I'll give you four pesos a kilo for your maize. The guys bring it out, they put it on the truck and they drive off. And so that has been a system that's a very informal system that has kept prices extremely low to farmers. And then the, the guy with the truck and the cash is the one who makes most of the profit, then dropping it off at a tortilleria in, in Mexico City or some other city. So yeah, it's there's a lot of ways that you can do this. We've thought we we've worked with a big groups of people, up to 70 scientists trying to come up with different ways. I think there's a million ways you could tweak this, a million ways you could do it. It's just, you know, we prioritize focusing on these indigenous communities that really had been custodians of these mazes and then figuring out how to benefit them. And so probably 
there's other ripples out from that that you could do that would benefit other farmers. But um, this was, you know, this was a value working together with a lot of farmers. Okay, uh, Nico, I will get to your question. You'll actually be the last one, but I think Nora Haynes' question really would follow up the previous question really well. So if it's okay with Nora, I'll, we'll switch to you and then we'll come back and we'll get Nico's question last. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, Martha, uh, Nora, Hong here, we met some years ago. Just wanna like say, wow, your team has thought this through so carefully. Um, I really appreciate the attention to ethics and the attention to dignity. I mean, I don't know how many people on the call have spent time in rural Mexico, but these people get treated like dirt, really like dirt. There are no social incentives to being a campesino. Um, and so that made me think about power and what you all are thinking about uh, power relations in Mil País, because I could see all of this going a number of different ways. So on the one hand, I see that connecting people to restaurants directly increases prices, but it also makes them potentially vulnerable to those um, restaurant owners in the power relations. Um, we know that cooperatives in the forestry sector and other sectors in Mexico have also been kind of susceptible. So I'm guessing you guys have already thought this through. Um, I also just kind of want to put in your ear that there's uh, some good stuff out of international development that says one of the most important things people get out of these kinds of programs is the social connection to people like you and me. Uh, and so maybe we don't have to be so quick in exiting the scene. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it, I think that the key is to try to link these farmer cooperatives to more than one buyer, because that has been one of the ways I agree that they've been somewhat put on the spot. There's often been this vertical buying that some of these restaurants have their community and their farmers. And there are people who treat those farmers and those communities very well, but there, there is an obligation there. And so the buyers don't love it, but you know, I've tried to con connect these communities to multiple buyers and that way they're less likely to be left um, with brain that isn't bought, left with, um, you know, take it or leave it offers. But, you know, there are a, a not huge group, but there is a group of ethical buyers that really are listening and are really interested in helping these communities. Sometimes you have to explain it and I agree having some some people, some some people who are who's um, are not being paid through the process as helpers in that negotiation helps out to some extent so that they don't feel so vulnerable. But um, yeah, I, I've been heartened by the number of buyers who are interested in helping communities. Great, uh, last question. We're right on the hour and I know people are leaving. We'll take one more question and then we'll let Martha read after that. So Nico. Hi, um, Nico from NC State. Uh, this is such a cool project. Um, I'm interested if you've seen since starting it changes in which varieties are being grown or like the prevalence. Um, I know you mentioned that there were some efforts like changing the pricing structure for different varieties to favor lower yield ones or stop biodiversity from being lost, but have those been successful? Uh, I think that there is a tendency for people to buy what they know, which is what's the most common. So really um, one of the things that I've tried to do is make sure that multiple, that all of the material that is excess grain is presented to the buyers and that they know that it's there. And often um, they'll take things, they'll say, well, let me come back for that if I can get a buyer. Um, you know, the idea is to get some of these rare materials that are really interesting in front of chefs. And, and, and that's the thing that one of my colleagues, um, Amaro Ramirez said, you know, the chefs don't know what they want. You have, to, you have to explain it to them. And so really it involves 
presenting materials to these chefs so that they can, can even see it and play with it. And that's, you know, one of the things that we've done. Okay. Thank you, Martha, so much. Um, thank you, Patty at, and the GES Center for organizing this because you did a great job. Uh, thanks to everybody for attending. And um, I will stop the recording here and uh, say goodbye. Thanks, you all. Thank you very much. And um, if anybody wants any more information about ProMais Nativo, I can connect you to the people involved if um, you would like to speak with them. Okay, thank you.